Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitor is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. Welcome to This Weekend at CPA, episode 173 for the week ending September 26, 2019, the Nissan Miasma edition. We have several topics this week uh, of very interesting note, including both Nissan and Carlos Goshen settle SEC charges for failure to report uh, salary accurately. And we also have a major conflict of interest uh, possibility in the internal investigation. PwC is spanked again by the SEC. Technique FMC settles its SEC charges for its previously announced FCPA violations. Mike Volkoff asks, how do you fix a toxic culture? We consider what factors influence an ethical culture. Uh, we uh, have a very interesting post with Doug Cornelius. Uh, that if you're thinking about investing in U.S. real estate near a corner, what you need to check on. Eight prominent CCOs type of five compliance questions in an interview in Compliance Week. What are the 10 top reasons compliance programs fail? We uh, explore the fight against corruption in Mexico in an article on New York University's Compliance and Enforcement blog. We discuss the upcoming baseball playoffs, but Jay, of course, tries to make it about the Patriots. All on this week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, along with Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors. We are back for another episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 173 for the week ending September 26, 2019, the Franchise Record Edition. So, Jay, I am celebrating the Astros, who set a franchise record yesterday of 104 wins. Zach Grinke, our midseason pickup, uh, took a no-hitter into the ninth. So we continue to uh, rock and roll going forward. I'm just, uh, I'm a Houston homer now. I'm uh, picking up the bandwagon and riding along. Well, there's plenty of room for uh, for everybody on the Astros Express. So I'm cool. pretty sure I'm going to have you when the Astros play the Yankees. Uh, just because uh, your second favorite team is whoever plays the Yankees. So you're good for a little while. Yeah. So let's... Uh, Let's talk about our good friend, uh, Mr. Carlos Goshen, and what's happening at Nissan. So a lot happening this week uh, at Nissan, Jay. First of all, early in the week on Monday, the Securities and Exchange Commission had charged Nissan, the company, and Director Goshen, excuse me, former CEO Carlos Goshen, with fraud for failing to disclose more than $140 million, which was to be paid to him in retirement. Perrin, no word on whether that would be paid to him in jail, end Perrin. Um, but this was one of the things that I think really 
upset uh, the Japanese uh, prosecutors as well. Uh, clearly, this was a uh, attempt to hide compensation that was going to go to Goshen. And uh, this is a, it's a pretty big spanking by the uh, SEC. Uh, but the bad news really didn't end there, Jay, because uh, there was just a damning article in the Wall Street Journal about Nissan lawyers who had flagged possible conflicts of interest uh, uh, involving uh, Nissan and the investigation. These conflicts uh, centered around uh, senior vice president of Nissan, one Harry Nada, who is uh, who oversees the company's legal department, who is heading up the internal effort. Well, unfortunately, he has had charges brought against him uh, as part of the Goshen uh, investigation, and he's uh, cooperating with the government, uh, Japanese government. But he's doing that while he is directing the legal department. So that's a pretty clear conflict of interest. And apparently this was looked at internally and found to indeed be a conflict of interest and perhaps even violate company internal policies. For some reason, that information uh, was not forwarded, has not been forwarded to the board of directors. Uh, there have been internal whistleblower reports regarding uh, people's uh, who have been pulled off investigations or, or uh, investigations have been directed or undirected, uh, either by NADA or uh, people who still uh, report to him. Uh, none of that information has gotten to the board. It's not clear why it hasn't gotten to the board, but the general counsel uh, had to uh, to raise this letter, uh, this issue. So lots going on at Nissan, and it really spe- uh, speaks to the overall corporate governance problem. Okay, Jay, uh, I'm going to continue with our next story uh, from Francine McKenna at MarketWatch, our good friend Francine McKenna, and she reports that the SEC has settled charges with PwC and its partner, one Brandon Sprankle, for improper conduct and violating auditor independence rules. Um, Sprankle uh, uh, delivered or, or contracted with a customer that he was the audit partner for to do advisory work, and that is specifically prohibited after uh, came into effect after uh, Enron. He uh, to do this, he made intentional misrepresentations to the company's internal uh, conflicts uh, committee risk committee. Uh, so he obviously knew what he was doing. He apparently rejigged the uh, the offer several times to the client so that it would appear that they were offering uh, a very minimum amount of some type of service that would get through. So uh, seven point nine million. Uh, paid by PwC, uh, Sprankle agreed to $25,000 fine and a two-year uh, suspension from appearing or practicing before the commission, excuse me, a four-year with a right to reapply. So uh, pretty significant uh, fine and penalty. Uh, Matt Kelly and I took a, a deep dive into this uh, for this week's Compliance in the Weeds, uh, Jay. So uh, more miasma from PwC. So uh, next up, we've got a story from um – the FCPA blog from Harry Casson and Technic FMC pays the SEC $5 million to settle FCPA violations. Um, the company uh, paid the SEC $5 million Monday, Monday to settle FCPA offenses related to bribing Iraqi officials to win business and state-owned oil companies. 
the London-based company disgorged $4.3 million in pre-judgment uh, interest of $735,000 to the SEC. In an internal administrative order, the SEC charged Technique FMC with violating the FCPA books and records and internal accounting provisions. From at least 2008 through 2013, the predecessor company to FMC Technologies made over $740,000 in payments to a third-party consultant who used some of the money to bribe Iraqi officials to win business. In June, the company paid $296 to settle, $96 million to settle FCPA offenses with the DOJ. The DOJ said the charges against the company arose out of two independent bribery schemes by Technique to pay bribes to Brazilian officials and also the aforementioned Iraqi officials. Um, so that's uh, wrapping that one up. And uh, next up, we've got a story from uh, Mike Volkov from his website, taking a look at how you fix a toxic corporate culture. And um, Mike goes on to say that we know about high-profile scandals that lawyers and compliance officers point to as examples of weak or non-existent corporate culture. Almost every story includes failures of oversight, audit, legal, and compliance. In some cases, gatekeepers such as lawyers and even compliance officers have been involved in the misconduct. Once the company resolves the matter, perhaps after conducting an internal investigation or paying a fine, the hard work of fixing a company's toxic culture begins. Often such change requires changes in board members or senior management, and there's no guarantee that the ship will be righted. Uh, Mike talks about Wells Fargo and possibly that maybe they are just a company that is doomed to have mediocre ethics and compliance policies. Uh, Mike ends the article by taking a look at a basic to-do list of what you should do when you need to reboot your corporate culture. Companies should acknowledge their history of misconduct and commit to a new path. They should train board members on the importance of ethics and compliance, create a separate board committee dedicated to ethics and compliance, announce new values and a code of conduct, appoint at least one corporate board member who has expertise with ethics and compliance, design robust training, appoint a chief compliance officer that is a member of the C-suite, and ensure that robust reporting system is established. Uh, it's a long list. You can't do all that at once, but I think it's a great uh, place to start. So, Jay, uh, I think you are back with more um, information on what factors influence ethical culture as you continue your multi-part series on corporate compliance insights. What, uh, what do you have for us today? So this week I took a look at what can influence an organization's ethical culture uh, starting with senior leadership, and do your senior leaders practice what they preach? One of the key elements of effective leadership is listening. Are senior leaders in the organization listening to their people? Did they give the people an opportunity to be heard as to whether employees are receiving those messages? Do senior leaders get out of their ivy tower to go out into the field and meet with employees? Are there town halls and other type of group interactions? By visiting national and international business locations and listening, senior management can further share the company's mission and values. It is crucial for the perception to equal reality. It is one thing for a CEO to say she has an open-door policy that she wants to hear from anyone about illegal conduct that is antithetical to the company's values. 
However, if no employee has ever brought forward any information because they're too afraid to approach the CEO, then there's an obvious disconnect. If top management says compliance is number one, but a person who skirts the rules is not disciplined or worse, rewarded through promotion, such conduct and bad word gets around. No company bees, um, no company aspires to be unethical, and most employees do not want to engage in illicit behavior. But if senior management does not talk to everyone, they will not know how their messages are being received and perceived. It doesn't take long when there is a disconnect between what senior management says and what the employees take away. Next week, please join me for part three in this series when we explore the role of a chief compliance officer in strengthening the ethical culture of an organization. So, Jay, um, you may have heard that I am moving tomorrow. So moving into a new house. And so I've been thinking about real estate ownership quite a bit lately. And I was therefore very interested when our friend uh, and uh, your fellow Boston Homer, Doug Cornelius, posted this week on his great resource compliance building, which is uh, Compliance for Private Equity, a blog post entitled New Restrictions on Foreign Ownership of Real Estate. And I thought about that in the context of uh, the purchase of this home, uh, because my wife is English. And you may not be aware of some of the restrictions now for the purchase of uh, real estate in the United States, but let me just lay them on you. Uh, You can't purchase uh, in a restricted area, and that is defined as one of the following five. Within one mile of any 100 identified military installations. Two, within 99 miles, not 100, but 99 miles of... 32 identified military installations. Any county or geographic area identified in connection with certain Air Force bases located in Colorado, Montana, Nebraska, North Dakota, or Wyoming. Number four, any part of 23 identified military installations and located within 12 nautical miles of the U.S. coast. And finally, number five, and this is really going to uh, hurt the housing market in Galveston, Texas, located within or will function as part of an airport or maritime port. Uh, Doug ends his blog post with the following. I think it's about the most prescient comment you can have. Quote, looking for my headquarters in New England, Hanscom Air Force Base is listed in part one, <clears throat> restricting, sub- restricting subjected any foreign ownership within one mile of the base to Scipius oversight. I have to admit, I don't know the exact boundaries of the base, just a general area. But staring at the map, it looks like there's a whole lot of real estate, including a stretch of I-95 that will fall into this review. So if you buy in one of these areas, you're going to have to have a CFIUS review, um, and it's going to considerably increase the length of time. So if you're a real estate uh, purchaser, uh, beware of uh, these new restrictions on ownership of real estate around certain uh, restricted places in the United States. Great. So uh, next up, Tom, we have a story that comes to us from Compliance Week, and it's a real interesting Q&A with uh, eight top uh, chief compliance officers. Those who participate in the article are Norm Ashkenis from Fidelity, Alan Chu from Genesis, our good friend Andy Hinton at Google, um, the ever-popular Ellen Hunt from AARP, ARP, uh, John Krestinski, Freddie Mac, Fabiana Lacerca Allen from Amun, uh, Philip 
uh, Matheny from Tracton Group, Man SE, and Carrie Perman over at Navix Global. Uh, the, four, the five questions that these uh, eight esteemed uh, practitioners answer are, what are compliance? What do you look for in a deputy? What skill is the most important in your job? How do you demonstrate ROI to the C-suite? And what will compliance look like in five years? So uh, we link to that in the um, show notes. It's a real interesting interview. And it's uh, it's nice to see the prognostication of these uh, folks who have been in the industry for quite a while. Tom, um, next up, what are 10 reasons why compliance programs fails? Jay, two authors who have uh, written a book entitled The Business Guide to Effective Compliance and Ethics. The gentlemen are <clears throat> Anthony Haywood and Tony Osborne, and they're uh, from the United Kingdom, I think. I'm taking a look at what causes compliance programs uh, to fail. I'm not sure I agree with all of these. Nevertheless, it's certainly an interesting and provocative way to think about uh, compliance and, more importantly, its failure. So, uh, the short 10, uh, the 10 quickly, the 10 reasons are one, there's a lack of leadership. Two, when management is not held accountable for compliance, they see the co- compliance as the compliance function's responsibility. Three, uh, saying we only need to do the minimum, i.e., check the box. <clears throat> Four, over reliance on rules for everything. Uh, five, tied into that is when ethics is not values driven. Six, when compliance is seen out of touch, uncool, or the department of Dr. Land, the land of no populated by Dr. No. Seven, where there's deliberate skepticism of compliance going forward. Eight, when the compliance function asks, acts as the police rather than the business partner. See above, Dr. No. Nine, if there's willful dishonesty, often for self-enrichment by a small minority, i.e. rogue employees, and 10, when the organization's incentives are not aligned with its compliance objectives. Certainly some of these, uh, I think, are are things that uh, you and your colleagues talking about, particularly the uh, uh, asymmetry of incentives and compliance objectives. But uh, once again, Jay, uh, I have to um, congratulate Mishers Hayward and Osborne for putting this out there and really giving people a way to think about how compliance programs fail uh, while we usually talk about uh, how they uh, succeed. So uh, it's going to be interesting to read their book. Thanks, Tom. Uh, To wrap up our article for this week, we are taking a look at anti-corruption enforcement in Mexico. Are they at a possible turning point? This comes to us from three attorneys, Andrew Levine, Cara Brockmeyer, whose name may sound very familiar, and Marissa Artani. They're from Deba Voice. And, uh, Amidst much fanfare, Mexico adopted its new national anti-corruption system in about mid-2016. Many had hoped that Mexico would seize the opportunity and shortly thereafter pursue significant anti-corruption enforcement. But key posts within the anti-corruption system remained unfulfilled and no significant enforcement ensued. After about two years of relative inaction, Andreas Manuel Lopez Obrador, goes by the acronym of AMLO, not to be confused with JLO, campaigned successfully for president of Mexico in significant part based on a promise to eliminate the cancer of corruption. Over the last few weeks, especially given the arrest warrant issued for the former head of Petroleus Mexicanos, Pemex, 
new questions have arisen about expectations again. Uh, in this article, they go on to take a look at Mexico's new anti-corruption system, look at the platform of the government from AMLO and his willingness to scrutinize past misconduct, and they wrap up with recent steps towards implementing an anti-corruption framework. Uh, on the whole, in conclusion, there seems to have been recent progress in implementing Mexico's national anti-corruption system, though challenges remain. Likewise, the Pemex-related developments suggest that Mexico's government is willing to investigate and prosecute at least some conduct that it views as corrupt. In the coming months, we may get a better sense of how the administration of President Lopez Obrador will remain committed to his core campaign promise of fighting corruption. Relatedly, only time will tell whether recent anti-corruption developments in Mexico represent a watershed moment or outliers unlikely to be replicated. And uh, once again, uh, this article comes to us from the NYU. Uh, is What's the... Uh, Correct title, Tom? Compliance and Enforcement Blog. Yeah, so we usually seem to be picking this up every week or so. So there's some good articles there. We link to it in the show notes. And Tom, you've been talking about Convergence 19, which will finally arrive next week. Who are the folks that you spoke to this week in preview of their sessions? So on the Converge 19 podcast, Jay, we had uh, Monday Jackie Cheslow uh, with a great testimonial of why you should attend. On Tuesday, we had uh, Michael Rasmussen, the GRC pundit, who talked about a really provocative uh, and persuasive article he's written on a SWOT analysis for CCOs. Uh, Wednesday, I was joined by our good friend Stephen Martin, uh, who is going to talk about the role of the board of directors in a best practices compliance program. Today, uh, I posted a podcast with uh, Dan Chapman, who together, I believe, with uh, the FCPA monitor and uh, Jonathan Marks will be putting on a presentation about the new FCPA guidance, uh, and we note to your assist in the show notes. And then tomorrow, I uh, have a podcast with Rem McEacher from Exeger. On, uh, he's going to talk about the power of integrated third-party risk management. So uh, very interesting uh, set of podcasts. Once again, uh, we have just a limited number of uh, complimentary passes to Converge 19 uh, left. So if you want to go, uh, I can just uh, urge you to do so. But uh, we've got the code up there. Uh, you can register. Uh, all of that's in the show notes. So uh, I hope you will uh, plan to join us there next week. So uh, I guess uh, since I've Taking my vow of uh, silence with Boston sports, I'm just going to enjoy the ride with the Houston, as Jonathan Armstrong says, Astros. But I'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 173, for the week ending September 26, 2019, the Nissan Miasma edition. Uh, we will next be coming to you live from um, Converge 19 in Denver. And then, Tom, will we also report, return with a week app, weekend wrap or not? Oh, yes. Okay. So two more opportunities to listen to us next week. Thanks so much. Have a great weekend. And go Astros! Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. I also hope that you will join Jay and I at Converge 19, which will be next week in Denver, put on by Conversant. 
Once again, if you're a listener to this podcast, I have a free few free complimentary uh, passes left. So please check out the show notes and uh, register and come visit with us at Converge 19 and also be a part of the Everything Compliance live podcast that Jay and I are going to be a part of. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.